Welcome to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Over the next hour, Deborah, Tracy, and their guests will help you understand therapist burnout and how to feel better now. Listen close to bring vitality back to your practice. Now, here are Deborah and Tracy. Welcome to Reconceive. I'm Deborah. And I'm Tracy. And we are here today to talk about sex. Woohoo! Woohoo! <laughs> we have a wonderful guest joining us today um, to help us talk about this very um, important but potentially awkward subject. We haven't addressed this yet in our Reconceived series, um, but we're going to do so today because we think that there's a problem. We think there's a cultural problem with sex. And connection in general and intimacy. Yeah. And maybe even love. And maybe even love. Right. Exactly. So the core of every episode that we have done so far in this series has been about connection. So um, this episode will follow in line with reconnecting um, the importance of connection, and we'll be talking about therapists' well-being to um, to be consistent with our theme. So yeah, we're going to talk about the power of sex, the the need for it, the correlates of sexuality with well-being, and then look at therapists, therapists' sex lives. So hey, all you mental health professionals and uh, and other helpers out there. Um, I'm sure your ears are perked up and we're going to get started. So let me introduce our guest. We have with us today, Dr. Ginger Holzer, who is a licensed psychologist and she is an ASECT certified sex therapist. Um, she has taught sexuality in uh, undergraduate settings and in graduate settings. And she is the co-author of a book called Finding and Revealing Your Sexual Self, A Guide to Communicating About Sex. Welcome, Ginger. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and have this conversation. We are so happy to have you here today. Tracy and I have been talking about going here and talking about sexuality for months, and we, we needed some help. We did, and we, <laughs> we did a... We did a pre-meeting with Ginger, and it was so um, insightful and inspiring for me to think about different ways to approach, you know, the goal of having sex and doing it in a way that really builds a stronger connection with the person you're in relationship, you know, in that moment, whatever that relationship is. So I was a little trepidatious, but after our hour-long conversation with Ginger, I realized that, first of all, she has a depth of knowledge that's mm -hmm. really powerful. And uh, I realized she has a lot to say, yeah. so it makes our jobs much easier. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's one of my favorite topics, you know, to the horror of my children sometimes. <laughs> Well, I find it very refreshing that you can talk so easily about a subject that many of us have a lot of baggage with. And you would think that mental health professionals 
or helpers in general, whether we're physicians or nurses or educators, would not have that kind of baggage? Like maybe if we are a licensed psychologist, we don't have sexual baggage, but we do. So we need help. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, we get the same sex education that everybody else does. You know, um, fifth grade gym class, listen to your peers, <laughs> porn. <laughs> you know, that's the sex education we get. Um, and even in a graduate program uh, for psychologists, it's it's a uh, elective. It's not required. You're kidding me. No. And I, I went to an ASAC conference and sat next to a gynecologist and you know, I kind of looked at him and said, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, And he said, I don't, we don't get this in school. A gynecologist. I am shocked. Yeah. People don't yeah. talk about it. They, you, you know what? And now that I'm thinking about it, um, I had to take a course in sexuality in my graduate program, but there was just one. And I remember the professor was really trying to get so much material into this semester and yeah. we just we left feeling like wow i don't know anything yeah and becoming a sex therapist was kind of um like getting another masters it was a lot of work you know mm-hmm. just because there's so little knowledge that people have and we have to really cram it all in you know right and you told us a story when we met i think the first time you asked clients about sex mm-hmm. and it had such an impact on them that i think that's when well you described it as white luckily when you <laughs> actually introduced it yeah and you said that was one of the beginnings of your your path into sex therapy yeah and you know when i brought it up the the man in the couple said you know i miss her so much you know that's the problem and no, nobody's ever asked us that before. And so um, that piqued my interest. And then Libby and I wrote the book. And I just thought I'm going to get certified because there's a big need. So you got certified through this organization, AASECT. What does that stand for? Um, American Academy of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Okay. So kind of a broad interdisciplinary group. Yes. 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 But you can get educated through, like a therapist could go out and get education through that organization? Yeah. And there's plenty of opportunities to go to conferences and things like that and pick up credit. Um, but there's also programs beginning around the country um, just focusing on sex therapy. Do you mean graduate programs? Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Yeah, one is in Pennsylvania. It's called Widener. And then the, ah. universe, the University of Michigan has a program as well. Okay. Do you think it's growing in uh, the educational realm? People are starting to study it more and implement it into their pra- mental health practice? You, you know, um, I don't think so. I think that most times if a 
therapist is going to talk about sex, that's what they do. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and not just a therapist um, always bringing it up. Although I'm sure there's people out there that do and good for you if you do. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Most of us were not trained to have that front and center or to have it on our intake form or to be just attuned to that. Right. So that we'd ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one of the questions I ask in the, in an intake with somebody is, do you have any sexual concerns so that they know it's okay, you know, to talk about it mm-hmm. and not feel embarrassed or anything. So I put it right out there in the beginning. Yeah. Well, so can we talk about the larger cultural problem here for a moment? I alluded to it earlier, and and I think I told you, Ginger, that I, I went to search for actual scholarly articles on the dead bedroom, which is actually a term that I hear from my male clients. Uh-huh. And I've I've heard that term on podcasts and things, too, or sexlessness or involuntary celibacy. I didn't find much at all. And very little on sexual dysfunction in general. And I was really surprised. And that's really sad. And, you know, one of the things about sex um, research is is that it's very often incomplete and it focuses on orgasm and intercourse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, only 70% of women um orgasm through intercourse alone. So you're leaving out a big part of the female population. Mm -hmm. And so sex research is definitely lacking. And so what is this problem of the dead bedroom? Is that a thing? Is it for real? Yeah, yeah, it is. And you know, I've had couples come into me that haven't had sex in 20 years. Uh-huh. You know, or couples that come into me and they've never been able to have sex uh-huh. ever, you know, because of sexual pain or, you know, uh, performance anxiety and, you know, all kinds of reasons. So this is a couple where there's affection. We love each other. We like each other, but we we can't have sex or we've never had sex. Right. Because you, you can be attached to somebody and not necessarily um, be highly sexual with that person. Mm-hmm. Um but most of the people that come in that aren't having sex, they really want to, you know, they, they want to, and they're not able to, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I try and parse out psychologically what's going on there. If everything physical has already been um, deemed okay. Uh-huh. I wonder if that's why the gynecologist was in that class with you, because the gynecologist probably has patients quite often that have sexual pain or pain during intercourse, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's complicated because, you know, sometimes there may be a physical problem, but, you know, there's also the problem that somebody's very fearful or something like that. And then they end up with vaginismus, which is some, which is similar to clenching your fist you know? And so if they even see a penis coming at them, they clench up and then nothing's getting through there. Right. Vaginismus being painful intercourse. Right. Yeah. So that's psychological. I mean, right. For the most part, there are, there 
There could be some um, physical reasons, but it's rare. Right. Right. Well, and as we're always talking about, there's really no separation between that which we call physical and that which we call emotional. Oh, for true, sure. True. Social for pain sure. overlap theory. Mm-hmm. Well, and the emotional biggest, pain. Yeah. And our biggest sex organ is our brain. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right. Well, so would you agree that then if we were all having more sex, we would be reaping some kind of benefit of that? You know, honestly, there are tons of um, physical and psychological benefits to having sex. You know, it's an anxiety reliever. You know, there's just so many benefits. Uh Um, It helps with depression. Yeah. Immune functioning is one thing I saw. Absolutely. And, you know, it it is a form of exercise. So it does get your Mm -hmm. heart racing and. Um, right. About 150 calories burned per session. <laughs> <laughs> and it can help with sleep yeah. as well. Mm. Oh, for sure. For sure. And See? also also bowel function. Oh. Wow. As in, yeah. As interesting as that is, it, it does. Yeah. Interesting. It gets all, everything flowing. It's everything flowing. <laughs> so, so back to this idea of a cultural problem, um, why, assuming there is a cultural problem and that more and more people are having less and less sex or couples are, um, uh, according to, you know, the podcast material and the blog material and, and the few surveys that I found, couples are experiencing longer periods of sexlessness between them. Assuming that all of that is true, what might be driving it? Um, you know, one of the biggest things that I find when somebody is having um, like desire discrepancies where one person is hypersexual and the other person could care less is um, the problem of being in your head, you know, and not being able to be in the moment with that person and not being able to connect. Hmm. And so, you know, you you know, you're thinking in your head while a sexual experience is going on, what's going on at work tomorrow? And, you know, mm-hmm. what am I going to make for dinner? And, you know, those sorts of things that you can't get out of your head about. And yeah. so I think, and I wonder too about technology, you know, being part of that as well. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned work because that is a, a reason that's been cited by women um for not being in the mood right and you know there's so many things you can do about that um if you're creative if you can be creative Mm -hmm. you know like think about different times of the day which are way more um way better for you than waiting until the end of the night when you know you've been to work you've made dinner kids are bathed and in bed and you know, all of a sudden you're supposed to be a sex goddess, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And kind of following along with that idea, um, part of, I think the problem with sexuality is in this Judeo-Christian culture, then, and I'm just going to speak broadly here. I, I know that it's different across different denominations, but in general, there's kind of this, um, aim for, uh, purity or virginity before marriage 
And then I've heard people speak in that same tone about once you put on a white dress and walk down the aisle, then. Oh, sure. So you're told your whole life, don't do it. You know, you're going to get somebody pregnant. They show you pictures of diseased penises and vulvas. And, you know, you get no good mess. Nobody teaches anybody about pleasure. You know, that this can be pleasurable. And, you know, here's here's what you want to look for in a person before you decide to go there, you know, and morals and values along with that. But, you know, we're so concerned with abstinence and making sure nobody knows about the pleasure part. And so then you walk down the aisle in a white dress and a flip switches or a switch flips (laughs) and (laughs) and you're supposed to think, okay, now it's beautiful. And this is wonderful thing that I'm going to share with my partner. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> like that joke that says, sex is dirty and you want to save it for the one you love. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, my sex education was not, not good. I mean, you know, public schools, they don't really teach you much. And no. Parents seem hesitant. So, uh, but yeah, pleasure is never mentioned. It's never mentioned. It's always uh, diseases or un- mm-hmm. unplanned pregnancy or things like that. They don't talk about love and int- intimacy and the, the joy of bonding with somebody else mm-hmm. through touch or words. And, you know, what they do teach is proven not to be useful in preventing pregnancies or preventing STDs or whatever. So, but they just keep doing it. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. But the whole purity thing, you know, where people were wearing rings and, you know, yeah. Promising never to have sex until, until they're married. I mean, how do you, how do you take that out of your brain when you're finally married? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I couldn't. I, I speak from experience, and I'll just uh, reveal a little bit of my story here. Um, I was raised in one of those environments that was very thump 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 about sex. You know, it's just this bad thing, <laughs> and and it, people took a tone when they began to talk about it. They got a really worried look on their faces, and they would, you know, give you this very mm, down down tone and very very sad face about it um it's a like it's a necessity for procreation but it's not something to enjoy or it's not something to really get excited about we want to be very cautious and fence it in and all these things um and so then when i got married the first time as a girl uh like a child bride i was 22 but mm-hmm. i i couldn't i couldn't do that i couldn't do the switch thing um yeah so it was pretty bad yeah and, uh, those kinds of messages that we get you know along with you know the lack of information and the sexual messages we got at home uh-huh. faith community you know i mean nothing nothing good comes of that you know that nobody knows anything and so you know you talk about um we don't talk to our kids about sex. We don't know anything. <laughs> you know, most people just don't know anything. Yeah. And yeah. And it, that's, oh, it's got to be fixed. Well, it sounds like you were 
surprised at the amount of information that you learned once you decided to follow this path into sex therapy. So there's, there is a wealth of information available, but you really have to be ready to search for it or join a a graduate program like you were describing. Yeah. Um, It was funny when I was teaching uh, human sexuality to undergrads, they would come in and give me a look like, yeah, what are you going to teach me? You know, (laughs) and um, it was always so interesting because the last question I would ask on the final is what did you learn from this class and um, that you didn't know before and give me some, you know, some discussion from the book about it. And, you know, they were, they all said things like, I can't believe how much I didn't know about sex and, you know, about my body and, or about sexual orientation, you know? Well, I thought the same thing when we had that meeting before we did this uh, show, I was like, I wonder what she's going to talk about. And seriously, you could talk for hours and I would never get bored because (laughs) it really has made me think differently. So when you talk about the studies mainly focus on intercourse and orgasm, it really leaves out the most important part, Mm -hmm. which is the human connection. And and that's the part where you can really incorporate feeling and get out of your head. Like you were describing women, I think, thinking about a shopping list and uh, a nagging thought from work or whatever. But as a man, if the goal is to have sex, you're thinking, can I get an erection And so you may be in your head, but it's not your grocery list. So it's, it's more performance anxiety related. Absolutely. And performance anxiety, like I said, is one of the biggest things that I deal with. Um, Mm -hmm. Just because, you know, men are supposed to be sex machines and they're supposed to know what they're doing and then they can't get an erection and, oh my gosh, you know, what do I do now? And, And then it just builds because the next time, and then they start avoiding sex, which is one reason why men, you know, start having a lower libido is because they just, they avoid it. They don't want to deal with it because Uh it's too hard if it fails. Yeah. Yeah. So that sounds like it would reduce testosterone over time. Yeah. Potentially anyway. Mindfulness is probably one of the biggest things that I teach mindfulness and um kind of um some tantra type exercises mm-hmm. um to help people connect and it doesn't always have to be um goal oriented you know yeah kind of like we were talking about earlier the the goal could be a, a looser more flexible thing instead of um we must go from point a to point b this is this is how it has to work Right. So right. one of the one of the problems that we talked about that's that's a part of this larger cultural problem um, with sex is deficiencies in education. 
Um, so, so that's kind of what we're talking about when we mention the few research studies available, but it's also just deficiencies in the way therapists are trained. Like we, there's a lot of information we don't get in our graduate programs. How does this then fall out into the consulting room when we're sitting with a couple and they're, they're talking about, you know, their relationship distress and they feel disconnected and what, what's happening there? when we don't know to ask about sex. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that we have to ask the questions because, you know, we can pick and choose what kind you know, what we actually address in therapy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so somebody can come in and say, yeah, uh, we're not getting, we're not communicating well. And, uh, he stays out all night and our sex life, isn't doing well. And so what do we pick? Well, let's talk about communication. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Instead of following that path. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we know how to talk about communication. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's what we're good at. So we talk about communication and, you know, hopefully, you know, and we also have to look at our own biases and our own feelings about sex uh-huh. because we do carry baggage. We carry, you know, so much baggage in so many areas of our lives yeah that um our sexual biases start creeping in there you know like i don't know what to tell this person about sex because i'm not having a great sex life you know exactly i think that's where i've been for a very long time just uh, and i'll again more more tmi from deborah um <laughs> i just I just ended a long marriage, 26 year marriage. And I would say that the last half of it was pretty much celibate. So yeah, couples would come in to talk and would, you know, allude to that, but I would feel very ill-equipped to go there with them. Just like, I don't know. Yeah. But I think the thing that, the thing that we can do, um, if you don't have a, you know, a good understanding of sex. There's a lot of good books out there. There's um, usually um, probably more online, but there's opportunities for CEs and, you know, with sexual stuff. So, so we need to take a break here. Um, But when we come back, we'll talk more about um, this education deficit and then some things that we may begin to do about it. See you in a minute. Burnout takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients, and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference, but first need to feel better, more awake, and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to reconceive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Check out all our other episodes on demand. Now back to Reconceive. Welcome back to Reconceive. We're talking with Dr. Ginger Holzer today about sex. She is a psychologist and a sex therapist. We're talking about the larger cultural problem of sex and the lack of education that not only everybody that we help, all our clients have, but also us as therapists, as helpers too, lack of education and a lack of, um, maybe a lack of connection. And a lack of willingness to be intrepid, like Mm. Ginger's first story about asking her patients or clients about sex, opening this universe of knowledge that she studied. And and uh, I know after speaking with Ginger, I know that in my practice, I treat a lot of people with physical pain, but I very rarely talk about their sex lives with them. So uh, I, I just want to applaud you for being intrepid and white knuckling your way through that first <laughs> interview because it led you to a a place you really seem to enjoy, you know, talking about and educating people about. Thank you. So let's start to talk about the solutions to this problem. Um, We decided to turn this into two episodes instead of one, because there's just so much to talk about. Mm -hmm. And, and I realized this problem is a very big, broad broad thing here, but we're talking about deficiencies in education. We're talking about a lack of sex. We're talking about a lack of connection in general. Where do we start? Good question. I love that question. We start with ourselves. Sexuality starts with us individually. And so we have to know our bodies. We have to know what makes us feel good. We need to know What's the optimal condition for us in a sexual experience? You know, is it a place? Is it, you know, do you need music playing? You know, what? And so, you know, I often recommend people have sex dates with themselves, you know, themselves. Yeah. And just kind of wear something that they feel sexy in and, you know, take a bath or whatever makes you feel good. And, um, if it leads to masturbation, that's great. And if it doesn't, that's okay too. But, you know. Spending a concentrated period of time just with yourself focusing on your sexual self. Absolutely. And um, another thing I like to recommend is taking a diagram of a body. And so you can even just draw this loosely, you know, the front of a body and the back of a body and um, color in where you're, always comfortable being touched where you're never comfortable being touched, you know, using different colors. Mm. And, you know, maybe I might be willing to be touched there in a certain situation, but getting to know yourself and what, what works for you, what are your turn-ons and what are your turn-offs? Yeah. Wow. I like that. It gets, it gets you into feeling Mm -hmm. because doing those things are relying on a a felt sense, something you felt in the past. So, you know, 
feeling good taking a bath or wearing some clothing that makes you feel sexual or sensual or it it really is focusing more on feeling than thought it sounds like mm, right and just feeling. just being in that moment you know being in that moment with yourself and how often do we do that just have a moment with ourselves you know yeah not enough Nope. It's 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 luxurious to take that kind of yeah. time with yourself. Yeah. It feels luxurious. For sure. It really does. And I think we're all missing out by not experiencing that with ourselves. Um, there was, other than, um, other than just being in the moment and all of that, you can reconnect with your sexuality. You know, because we can go on day after day after day and, you know, go to work and, you know, do these things we usually do, run somebody to a football game or whatever. Um, but just reconnecting with our sexuality that gets lost in the world, you know? It does. It's not encouraged. There, there's plenty um, in our kind of mainstream daily lives to pull us away from awareness of our sexuality so that it, I think, becomes hidden. Yes. And it's such a big part of who we are, you know? Um, and we, we just kind of lop that piece of us off and we, we fill our lives with things that aren't as important as maybe spirituality or yeah. sexuality. I've heard lots of women say things like, I would be perfectly happy never having sex again. Do you hear that in your practice? I do. And those are the women that I really focus on. Let's let's do you. <laughs> you know. Let's figure you out, you know, mm -hmm. before you think about partnered sex. Uh -huh. You know, what what do you like? You know, and I also encourage them to try masturbating a couple of times a week, you know, uh -huh. as a practice, you know, and figuring out their bodies. Some of them look at me in horror, but <laughs> mm -hmm. but I think I think it's a wonderful idea. Do they respond? Will they follow through? Some do. If they're there, if they're there and they've told me their story and they're invested in working on this, yes, they will do it. And it I helps. Think, I think the women in my family of origin communicated nonverbally that sex was really optional and that mm -hmm. you could live without it um it was superfluous to human life right that's a message that i got loud and clear without anybody saying it in those words yeah and There's, i think i think a lot of us get those messages so then maybe coming back to just the fact that you are a sexual being that is a core part of who you are. And we're a sexual being from the time we're born until the time we die. You know, it's not just the our reproductive years or whatever, you know. And in fact, um, they've done studies on people over the age of 60. And um, the studies show that there's two reasons why people stop having sex in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And those two reasons are, number one, um, they don't have a partner, or number two, 
um, it's due to some sort of illness. Mm-hmm. It's so, not because they don't want to. It's not because they don't want to. Wow. Yeah. But some people probably avoid the pain that can come from relationships, I would think. Like, uh, you know, they've been hurt in love in the past and are timid about that kind of emotional pain in the future. Do you see that? I do. And I think it doesn't even, it. I think emotional pain. Um, so when you talk about the polyvagal system um, and pain in general, whether it's emotional or physical or whatever it is, and you think about um, fight or flight, you know, when you're being exposed to something that's scary and fearful, what happens is um, the blood from your genitals and the hormones that causes arousal, they go somewhere else because they're helping you fight or fight, you know? Mm-hmm. And so then um, the only way you can fix that is to fill your life with, you know, positive connected, safe relationships with other people. And then your polyvagal system can kind of change and and feel safer. Mm-hmm. So I agree. I, I agree. I think I think emotional pain <clears throat> plays a part in that as well. Yeah. The just that fear of being hurt. And I guess fear of being hurt or past hurt in relationship can totally re condition the sexual system the the response cycle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and you know that's something else that um that as a society we don't look at i mean we look at we look at the physical and then somebody else will look at the psychological but we're not treating the whole person you know we're not we're not treating you know just what you're saying that whole response cycle of you know, um, phys- because we all respond physically, we respond psychologically, mm-hmm. and um, we just kind of work on one aspect. Yeah. You had mentioned Emily Nagoski uh, when we met before, and I'm reading her book right now. In fact, I, I am sitting here looking at the workbook, the Come As You Are workbook. Uh-huh. It's pink. Um, and she makes a couple of points. I'm not done reading this book, um, and I'm I'm just a few pages into the workbook, but I thought it was really compelling. And something she says is connected to what you just said. Um, so here, here are the main points from her work. We're all made of the same parts, organized in different ways. Um, there's a sexual accelerator and a break. That seems key. Um, Pleasure, desire, and genital response are not the same thing. Okay. Arousal, non-concordance is normal. I want to ask you about that because I don't know what that means. Um, Responsive desire is normal. And perhaps above all, she says, context shapes our access to pleasure. Oh, for sure. When, when you think about it, when you think about what pleasure is to you, you know, I mean, you could tell us all your turn-ons and Tracy could tell us his turn-ons. I could tell you mine. 
and they're all different, but, but that's an accelerator, you know? So it's, mm-hmm. we're all the same, but we're all different. And then the same with the brakes. And some people can have more sensitive brakes, which are the turnoffs. Yeah. And, and if they have a very sensitive brake, then it's a problem. Right. Some people have low sensitivity in accelerator and high sensitivity in brakes, she says. Right. Yes. Yes. And so the key to all of that, you know, the thing we need to learn from all of that is we need to know what our brakes and accelerators are. Our turn-ons, our turn-offs. Mm-hmm. And um, we don't we don't necessarily do that. You know, we don't, this is something we don't necessarily think about. You know, when I, when I talk about the body maps and, you know, thinking about optimal sex conditions for you, um, we don't think about those things, you know, and people have, mm-hmm. people have gone home and colored in their pictures and everything and come back and say, I just didn't even realize how much of my body I'm okay with being touched or how much of my body I'm not okay with being touched. Wow. Or how many times when I might be able to do that in certain occasions. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how much information is hidden from ourselves or is with outside of our self-image. Mm-hmm. So your answer was kind of surprising to me where you start with yourself, but it actually makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get a better idea. Well, I don't even know what I want, mm-hmm. you know, the, the exercises you describe would make it much clearer. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that is is the perfect place to start. It's kind of like movement lessons, helping you to create a more detailed map of your body in your brain. It's exactly like that. And before the yeah. show started, you were talking about um, sex without penetration and a lot of times I consider that a, a constraint. So Feldenkrais work puts constraints on movement. Mm. So your body is forced to move in a different way mm. or yeah. caused to move. Forced is probably too strong a word. But when you put constraints like having sex without intercourse, then you get a chance to figure things out in a different way. It's a beautiful idea. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And people get in ruts, you know, they get to a point where their sex life is the same every single time. And um, just being able to explore and try different things and move differently and um, eye gaze during sex or whatever is beautiful. Yeah. Well, in that last point that she makes about context, um, she Nagoski talks about how one kind of touch might be an accelerator for you at a certain time of the day or in a certain place, but it might hit the brakes at another time of day or in another context. And she made the uh, she gave the example of somebody swatting you on the butt that it might in a, in a certain context. Um, kind of turn you on. But if you you get swatted on the butt while you're trying to get your toddler's sneakers on their feet, <laughs> it, it is probably not going to have that effect. <laughs> or, or just thinking about being groped. I mean, there's times you can be groped and just be 
like, oh, are you kidding me? (laughs) This is not happening. And there's other times that you you want to be touched, you want to be loved, you want to be desired, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. right. It's not when I'm trying to empty the dishwasher. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And apparently that piece is especially key for women. Right. Not just for women, but more women talk about that kind of thing. Right. Okay, so go ahead. The the way that... um, the way that men are aroused and desire and all of that, it goes up a ladder. It's very linear, you know? So a man sees something that turns them on or feels something or smells something or whatever. And he gets, he gets aroused. And then, you know, if it goes the way he wants orgasm and then resolution, but for women, we need something else. We walk around at at neutral all the, all the time. We're not walking around thinking, I want to jump that person's bones. We just don't. And so we're walking around in neutral all the time until something happens that we think, oh, I might be able to do that. That sounds like a good idea. You know, and then we can, you know, go up the ladder. So somebody might come up and put their arms around you or you had this really great conversation. You feel so connected or, you know eye-gazing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it, and then it becomes a possibility, something that it like exactly. enters the consciousness. Right. Right. Okay. I like that you mentioned different times of day. When I got up this morning, I was reading about bladder and kidney. I do a lot of, uh, combine a lot of Eastern medicine work into my practice. And bladder is about sexuality uh, kidneys, sensuality, or or vice versa. The whichever one's the f- masculine is about sexuality, mm. and it's from three to five p.m. And that made me think of that song, "Afternoon Delight." <laughs> but it also made me think, you know, f- bladder is about releasing emotions, especially anger, and then kidneys about fear. Mm-hmm. So kidneys. We live in a culture that promotes fear, not safety. So Deborah and I run into a lot of people who are stuck in a state of defense, Mm -hmm. either fight, flight, or freeze. And in those instances, you know, connection with other humans is more difficult. Sexual relationships are more difficult. So anything we could do to make our culture feel safer would promote more connection between human beings in general, but also in the in the uh, relationship between sex partners. If if you're doing things that make them feel safe, no matter what it is, then you have a much better chance of having a good connection. But that has to be a form of communication between the people who are coming together and searching for intimacy or whatever. So how do we make sensuality safer? How how do we help each other be sensual in a way that isn't triggering 
And and you mentioned um, when we were talking about this the other day, you mentioned just just the tactile skin, you know, the feeling of the skin. You mentioned smell, um, sound, and just tuning into just those things. Right. Listening and being heard. But also Ginger was telling us about just tactile sensations like touching your partner with a feather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that we touch people the way we want to be touched, right? You know, just like we love people the way we want to be loved. But when we touch people the way we want to be touched, that's not always pleasing to the other person. And so, you know, connecting enough to get to know that, you know, how do you like to be touched? Here's how I like to be touched, you know? And I I had a couple come in one time and I would have, um, she was just, she was so upset about the way he touched her. She would just cringe. And um, I had, I had her take his arm and she touched him the way he touched her and he liked it. And so she touched him the way she wanted to be touched. And he was shocked. He said, I had no idea. And so, you know, we don't learn those things about each other and talk about things like that. And, you know, Tracy, you were talking one time about smells and, you know, how powerful smell can be, you know, and trying to incorporate that, all the senses into connecting with somebody else, which is um, the most mindful thing you can do to get out of your head, mm-hmm. you know, and be in the moment and actually have a connection with somebody. Yes, yeah, um, sense of smell is you know, one synapse. So it's a very, very strong, uh, it can be tied to very strong emotions. But after what you just were talking about, I I get a clear sense that for a lot of couples, it would be very difficult to do these things on their own. So I'm seeing you as a guide, just what you described where you're saying, okay, you say what what you like and how you like to be touched. Yeah. And then you say, but it, it, it makes it so clear that having a facilitator like you would make it much easier for many, many couples mm-hmm. because most people could say, read a book or watch a video or something and say, <laughs> Okay, this is what we're going to do. And then we're like, okay, you start. (laughs) I remember the first time I ever had a couple in my office close their eyes and touch each other's hearts and just think about their partner. And they just cried because it was just such a powerful moment for them. Or have two people eye gazing, you know, just, just look at your partner and think about, you know, the things that just feel whatever comes up Mm -hmm. and, you know, keep in the moment. And it was beautiful. It's beautiful for me to watch. Yeah. (laughs) So powerful. Well, we use eye gaze in attachment EMDR. Super powerful. We combine the uh, sustained eye contact with the bilateral stimulation. And, you know, originally when I learned to do that, I, I learned to do that with a 
parent and a child to strengthen the attachment bond. But then I, I took it into couples therapy and it works so well to help these entrenched couples to kind of come out of the trenches and kind of back into each other's arms. Sure. I love this. It really clarifies that psychologists are guides. They're holding, creating a safe space for people to feel these things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes we have to take off our expert hat and just be collaborators with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which, which I think means coming back to the self, knowing uh, knowing what I feel, knowing what I want. I I really have to start there if I'm just going to be with you in a collaborative way. So I know we're getting close to the end here and there's so much more um, and we will be back um, for another episode with Ginger soon to go into more of this healing um, and how to solve this problem. Um so in the meantime, thank you, Ginger, so much yes, for joining us. You. This oh, you bet. so, so helpful. Um, I have a lot to think about here. So um, write to us, reconceive, reconceive therapy at gmail.com. And we will hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Reconceive. We hope you've learned something today you can use to reconnect and feel better. Tune in next week for more on transforming practice. Until then, have a great week.